Okay, guys, um, grab your Bibles and open it up to Job chapter 38. It's a big reading today. We're going to read all the way through to chapter 40, verse 5. Um, this, this man, Job, that we've been reading about in the book of Job, was a good godly man. He suffered tremendous loss in his life. And the book's been wrestling with why God allowed this to happen. Um, Job has said some amazing things about God. He's got some amazing statements of faith. Um, that, that we've we've studied as we've looked through this. He, he is an example of, of patient endurance. But there have been times where, and we saw this last week, where Job said stuff that was just not true. And in his pain, he said stuff that was wrong about God. He's made accusations against God. Um, Job, in his final speech, is almost like a prosecuting lawyer. Like he's calling God to come down and to step into the dock and, and to give a reason for why He is behaving unjustly. Uh, Now, last week we met Job's pal Elihu, who very helpfully rebuked some of those things that that Job said. And everything that Elihu said really was to set God up. Because what we're about to read of here is, I guess it's the turning point in the whole book. This is the moment that Job has been longing for. God himself is going to come and speak. Far from stepping into the dock, we'll see that Job is going to be in the dock because God is going to answer Job by questioning Job. So, let's read it. What does the Lord have to say to this suffering man? Chapter 38, Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, Who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand who marked off its dimensions. Surely you know who stretched a measuring line across it. On what were its footings set or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the cloud its darkness and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no further. Here is where your proud waves halt. Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? That it might take the earth by the edges and shake the wicked out of it? The earth takes shape like a clay under a seal. Its features stand out like those of a garment. The wicked are denied their light and their upraised arm is broken. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea? Or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. What is the way to the abode of light? Where does darkness reside? Can you take them to their places? Do you know the path to their dwellings? Surely you know, for you were already born. You have lived so many years. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow? Or seen the storehouses of the hail? For which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle. What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed? Or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorms? To water a land where no one lives. An uninhabited desert. To satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. 
Does the rain have a father? Who fathers the drops of dew? From whose womb comes the ice? Who gives birth to the frost from the heavens when the waters become hard as stone and the surface of the deep is frozen? Can you bind the chains of Pleiades? Can you loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their season or lead out the bear with its cubs? Do you know the laws of the heavens? Can you set up God's dominion over the earth? Can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with a flood of water? Do you send the lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you, here we are? Who gives the ibis wisdom or gives the cockerel understanding? Who has the wisdom to count the clouds? Who can tip over the water jars of the heavens when the dust becomes hard and the clods of earth stick together? Do you hunt the prey for the lioness and satisfy the hunger of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in uh, wait in a thicket? Who provides food for the raven when its young cry out to God and wander about for lack of food? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time they give birth? They crouch down and bring forth their young. Their labor pains are ended. Their young thrive and grow strong in the wilds. They leave and do not return. Who let the wild donkey go free? Who untied its rope? I gave it the wasteland as its home, the sea flats as its habitat. It laughs, it laughs at the commotion in the town. It does not hear a driver's shout. It ranges the hills for its pasture and searches for any green thing. Will the wild ox consent to serve you? Will it stay by your manger at night? Can you hold it to the furrow with a harness? Will it till the valleys behind you? Will you rely on it for its great strength? Will you leave your heavy work to it? Can you trust it to haul in your grain and bring it to your threshing floor? The wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork. She lays her eggs on the ground and lets them warm in the sand, unmindful that a foot may crush them, that some wild animal may trample them. She treats her young harshly as if they were not hers. She cares not that her labour was in vain, for God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. Yet when she spreads her feathers to run, she laughs at horse and rider. Do you give the horse its strength? Or clothe its, mane with a, clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? It paws fiercely, rejoicing in its strength, and charges into the fray. It laughs at fear, afraid of nothing. It does not shy away from the sword. The quiver rattles against its side along with the flashing spear and lance. In frenzied excitement, it eats up the ground. It cannot stand still when the trumpet sound. At the blast of the trumpet, it snorts. Aha! It catches the scent of battle from afar. The shout of commanders and the battle cry. Does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread its wings towards the south? Does the eagle soar at your command and build its nest on high? It dwells on a cliff and stays there at night. A rocky crag is its stronghold. From there it looks for food, it detect, its eyes detect it from afar. Its young ones feast on blood and where the slain are, there it is. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. And Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. 
how can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Well, what do mountain goats giving birth and ostriches have to do with suffering? Everything. Let's pray and we'll look at this magnificent speech from God. Father, we need your help. We need wisdom. There's stuff in here that's difficult, that's complicated. But Father, we really need the wisdom to see you as God and as great and as good. Teach us, please, to take our eyes off ourselves and to look to you. Speak to us now through your word. Give us understanding so that we do not speak words without knowledge. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the accusation that that, um, Job has really thrown at God is to challenge how he runs the world. So in his suffering, Job has said, look, God, you have not been just in how you have treated me. You're not running. You're not running this world well. This is not the way it should be. Now, this is something that um, I hear often. Uh, people who, who will say, you know, I cannot believe in God because this happened to me. Or I cannot believe in God because I have seen this. We think You know, if that were me, if I was in God's place, I would never let that happen. Now, we can understand why people are saying that. But but what's behind that is that this idea that God hasn't run this world well because of what's happened to me, because of what I've seen. And if I was in his place, I could do a better job. Um, It's kind of like that film Bruce Almighty. Now, I've not seen the film and I don't plan to see it. But from what I gather, the premise of the film was that there's this guy, played by Jim Carrey, who uh, thinks that God isn't running the world properly. And so he meets God and he's given this task by God to see how he gets on with it. And he quickly finds out that it's not as easy as he thought. Or I don't know if you're a fan of the band Muse. Uh, Well, for the both of you that are, they've got a great song called Knights of Sidonia. But the first line of that song goes like this. Come ride with me through the veils of history and I will show you a God who falls asleep on the job. See, humanity is often very quick to accuse God of wrong because he has not done things the way that we would want to see them done. But Job's cries here, you've got to understand, Job is not some kind of pretentious philosopher or it's not a comedy film or a rock band. These are the cries of someone who is a genuine believer, someone who has loved God and served him all his life. And yet because God has allowed such pain, he cannot help but think that God is cruel that God does not care and that God is being unjust in how he runs this world. Now, here's the problem in, in all of this. And I think this is the problem that this speech is really going to correct. Job's view of God is too small and his view of himself is too big. And so we need to be careful 
that what we say about God and how we view God in our suffering is not shaped by the fact that our view of ourselves is too big and our view of God is too small. We need to not think that God is just a larger version of us. Like, like he is just kind of me, but blown up with superpowers. We need to understand, Job needs to understand, God is God. Which means that we cannot think that we could understand everything that he is doing. We cannot think that he owes us an explanation for what he is doing. Nor can we accuse him that he is not running the world the way we would run it, as if we were God. As if me, this finite sinful person whose life is just a breath and who sees only the tiniest little slither of time knows better than the one who sees the beginning and the end. Because when we start to do that, we we start to speak foolishly. We we speak, as as God says about Job here in chapter 38 verse 2, we speak words without knowledge. And so what we need in our suffering is not for God to stroke our, our sinful egos. You see, you see, suffering, when you suffer, it has a tendency to shrink your world. What's great about this speech is it's going to get us to look beyond ourselves, to, to the wider world that we inhabit. But suffering has a tendency to shrink our world, and, and often it can bring out sinful pride that is in our hearts, where we just make everything about us. Even the best of us will do that. Because even the best of us are sinners. Job is the best of us, make no mistake. There was no one like this man. And yet he too had sinful pride. And the suffering really brought that out. So what we need, what we need is not for God to to pamper to that pride. Because it's wrong. Job does not need God to explain everything. That's what he wants, but it's not what he needs. You know, I I thought about this speech so much because I've often wondered, why doesn't God just tell him what happened? What we read of right at the start of this book. It's because Job is not on the same level as God. God does not owe Job. And what Job needs to know more than anything, more than the answers to these why questions that he has been asking. What he needs to know is the who question. Who has he been asking this to? Who has he been accusing? And he needs to know that God is God and God is good. Really, that is the essence of the two speeches that God gives uh, in chapter 38 through to 42. God is God and God is good. And it is not cruel nor is it unkind for God to remind us that we do not know that we are limited and that we should let him be God. In fact, quite the opposite. It's the kindest thing you could say. I used the illustration last week of taking my wee one-year-old Lewis uh, to get his injections. I say I took them. I didn't take them because I hate needles and I hate watching him you know, get injected. Uh, so Kyrene took them. Um, But that little moment of pain that he experienced, you know, we couldn't explain to him beforehand, look, this is what's going to happen. He didn't understand. He just, he's not able to understand. He doesn't see the big picture like we could. All he had to do was trust us as his parents. 
And we cannot understand. We are so small. We are so finite. And so we need to let God speak here. We need to let him humble us. We need to let him show us the stars. And remind us of whose world it is that we live in. And I want you to know that when we speak of God. We're not just meaning kind of you know generic any kind of God. Um, look at verse 1. The God who speaks here is called the Lord. And whenever you see the Lord in capital letters in the Bible, it's the Hebrew name Yahweh, the personal name which God gave to his people Israel. So the God who speaks is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. This God speaks and he says, Job, You have asked a lot of questions. Well, brace yourself like a man. Because I will question you and you will answer me. Now, in the speech that follows, um, it's really just divided into two parts. In verse 1 to 38, God talks about um, how he governs every part of creation. And then in verse 39 through to the end of chapter 39, he talks about how he governs every creature in creation. So every part of creation and every creature of creation. Let's, let's look at this. Let's, let's take our eyes off ourselves here and see the big picture. Oh, how we need this in our pain. Think about the beginning. Chapter 38, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know, Job. You're certainly talking like you do. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Wow. The universe... Is described here like God's DIY project. He marks off the dimensions. He lays the cornerstones. And his angels are watching him do this. Creating this wonderful, vibrant creation. And as they watch, they're just singing with joy. This world that God made. Originally it was made good. It's been tainted by sin. But even... The bad and the good has all been worked together by the master architect for his great cosmic plan, which is why heaven sings. Job, did you did you know that? Were, were you there at the beginning? When heaven erupted in song as I laid the foundations of the universe? Think about what you see right here. Think about the sea, verse 8. The sea for um, the Israelites was always a symbol of kind of chaos and evil. There's something that was wild and untamable. Think of these great storms which have destroyed ships and tsunamis that have wreaked havoc. See how God describes the sea in verse 8. He describes it like a baby bursting forth from the womb. Wrapped in the swaddling cloth of clouds and thick darkness. The storm is just a tiny baby to God. The waves are only allowed to go as far as God says they can go. Can you do that, Job? What about the sunrise? Verse 12. God's 
in the way he speaks of himself, he's kind of described himself as an architect, laying the foundations of the universe, as, as a parent, you know, kind of swaddling the sea. Verse 12, he's like a general. He's given orders to the sun about when it can rise and when it can set. By the way, did you, did you know that? that um, why does the sun come up in the morning instead of the evening? You know, that's not really something I think about. It's just, well, it just does. It just happens. It's just like the natural rotation of the earth. Well, no, it happens because God makes it happen. God is controlling it. It's not that he just sets it in motion and he steps back. No, he, he's moving it. He's rotating the world like a, like a giant kebab. That's, that's kind of Charleston poetry. It's not as good as this. Um, but that's what he's doing. Every movement happens because he orders it to happen. Think of that. You know, there's a, there's a lot of light and darkness imagery here as well. And verse 12 to 21 probably has a double meaning. Like light is an image of goodness. Dark is an image of wickedness. And so God is showing Job not just how he governs creation, but how all who are righteous and wicked, all who are good and bad, in creation, all of that is under his control. Even the extreme depths of death itself, the great unknown for us, is not unknown for him. Verse 17. Have the gates of death been shown to you, Job? Have you seen the gates of deepest darkness? Do you control death? That great dark unknown, have you been there and have you returned? Do you know? Look look down, look to the depths and realize how little you actually know about this world and how it's run. Actually, God, God's getting him to look down, but he also now, he wants him to look up. Verse 22, look up to the skies. Verse 22, let's think about the different kinds of rain. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? It says here, look, I keep the hail and I keep the snow. And I can use it for war and battle. I can use it as an act of judgment, which, which he does do in the Bible. Not always, doesn't mean that when the snow comes, that's God judging us, but he's saying he has the authority and the power to do it and to use it that way. The skies can bring destruction, but they can also bring blessing in the rain. Verse 25, who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass. Have you ever think about that uh, in, in the sky? We're so dependent, obviously, upon rain and water. Above us is the potential for death and destruction and life and blessing. Just floating above our heads right now. I mean, it's incredible when you think about it. If it didn't rain, we'd be in big trouble. Right, we have these kind of, um, these just tons of water floating above our head. I mean, I don't even know how that works to have all that up above us. I'm sure there's some eggheads watching this that could explain it. But I guess that even if you, you look to the detail of, of the science behind it, of how it works, it would still be fascinating that it does work. 
Why not look, keep looking, but look beyond the clouds. Look to the stars. Verse 31 to uh, 33 is a, a reference to star constellations. So the Pleiades, or however you say it, Orion, the bear, those are kind of different uh, star signs, I guess. And it was believed by a lot of people at Job's time that life was controlled by the stars, which is not a million miles away from what we see here. Uh, and, and there's loads of folks around here that will get the paper to check their horoscopes and because they believe their life's controlled by the stars. God's saying, look, the stars are bound to him. He governs the laws of heaven. So even if you can work out the skies or how the weather works, you need to understand that you can't control it. You can't control what's going on. Look at how small you are. Verse 34, Job, can you raise your voice to the clouds and cover yourself with flood water? Do you send lightning bolts on their way? Do they report to you and say, here we are? I love that one. You know, um, God, actually in the Hebrew, it's like God whistles for the lightning and it stands to attention before him. So he just goes, and then lightning bolts are there. And he says, right, I want you to strike there. I want you to strike there. I want you to strike there. Job, can, can you do that? Now, I mean, this, this is just immense stuff that's going on here. But let's just stop and ask ourselves, why are we thinking about weather? Like, I know we're Scottish. We love to talk about the weather. It's a bit mental at the moment. But what has this got to do with suffering? It has got so much to do with our suffering. Because it's a reminder, isn't it? All of this is a reminder. And I hope you're starting to feel it. Of just how small we are. Of how little we know. Of how little we can control this world. And therefore... How big God is, how much God knows, and how in control God is of this world. The wild, untamable weather reminds us of the wild, untamable God who stands above the storm and governs it and whistles for the lightning and dictates where it will go. Every single part of this world is under his control. Do you know sometimes in the morning if you see a beam of sunlight coming through your window and all those little specks of dust, you see them kind of floating about? Do you know that God directs the movement of every single one of those specks of dust? How powerful he is. See it so that we can realise how powerless we are. And that's what we need to know in suffering. Because just because we cannot see what the point is does not make it pointless. We can't see so many things. Of course we can't understand. We can't understand any more than we can whistle for lightning. And yet, and yet this great God is not silent, is he? Do you know what's amazing? Do you know what the most amazing thing I think about this first speech is? It's the fact that God says it. He actually speaks to Job. And he has spoken to us. Not through a storm, but through a person. Through Jesus, God himself, come down in the flesh. And, and by the way, we see this in Jesus also. Think about in, in Mark chapter 4, Mark's gospel chapter 4. Jesus is in a boat. 
with, in the middle of a great big storm with his disciples. And the storm is so terrifying that the disciples who were experienced fishermen thought that they were going to die. But Jesus stood up amidst the wind and the waves and he cried out, quiet, be still. And in an instant, this furious squall with these massive waves with wind and lightning and rain, in an instant, it became a still, calm body of water. It's exactly what God says in Job 38 verse 11. Just like that. And you know what? When the disciples saw that, they weren't thinking, whoa, that's cool. The disciples were terrified of Jesus. Who is this, they said, that even the wind and the waves will obey him? Their view of Jesus was too small. Don't fear the storm. Fear the one who calms the storm. We need that larger view of Jesus because he has been to the darkest depths of death and come out the other side. His greatness, his power, his authority. There is so much that we cannot do or cannot know that he does. So a speech like this is to get us to humbly submit to the Lord of the storm. Let's keep looking. Let's keep looking at Job 38 and just, I guess, let's keep shrinking ourselves down and getting this larger picture of God. See his his sovereign rule over every part of creation. Let's think about his sovereign rule over every creature in creation. Um, We've been thinking about the sky at night. Now let's think about Animal Planet. Uh, Don't know if you've ever watched that or or Blue Planet with uh, David Attenborough. We should should watch that. Christians... um, should so that we can just see the greatness of creation and the wisdom of our creator. Uh, David Attenborough, who I gather is not a believer at all, actually brings so much glory to God by showing us these wonderful um, parts of creation that we would never see otherwise. So God does that. He gets Job to think about the animals. Not the animals on your farm, Job. The animals you cannot see. Wild animals. And, and it's worth us thinking about this because Again, it just helps us see that we are living in a world that is well-ordered, in which there is wisdom in creation. A world, as verse 39 to 41 says, where God provides for the animals. He, He feeds the lions and he feeds the ravens. Now, it's interesting, Jesus says something similar, doesn't he? When Jesus is talking about our anxiety and our worries, he says, what I want you to do is to look at nature. Look at the lilies of the field and how God clothes them. Look at the birds of the air and how God feeds them. Look and see that if he cares about that, how much more will he care for you as his children? Even if we're struggling to see it. So God wants Job to take his eyes off himself and see his sovereign rule and care over all the animals of the world. Chapter 39 verse 1. Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you watch when the doe bears her fawn? Do you count the months till they bear? Do you know the time that they give birth? Think about mountain goats, right? I don't know if you ever thought about that. These kind of shy, elusive creatures hidden away. Um, There's some great images I saw on the internet, I think on BuzzFeed, of just places that mountain goats have got to. They can just get into the most difficult places they're incredible climbers 
And so God's picking an animal that's shy, that's elusive. It's not on Job's farm. You might not have even seen a goat, but he's saying, well, think about the timing of when a mountain goat gives birth. Do you know when the goat's going to give birth? I don't even know where the mountain goats are. Well, God does. He knows when they'll be born. He's in charge of it, caring even for these distant, wild, obscure animals. And if he knows their times, then he knows what's going to happen in your time. God goes on to get Job to think about a wild donkey running free on the salt flats. Can you give that kind of freedom, Job? Or in verse uh, 9 to 12, he speaks of a wild ox, just this kind of, this big beast of, of power, this terrifying creature. And he asks Job, can you get that ox to serve you? Can you control it? Why not try it, Job? Go and find a wild ox. Get it to kind of work your farm. And Job knows that if he did that, he'd just be killed. It would, it would gorge him to death. And so if you can't control one wild animal, what makes you think that you know how the universe is to be run? I'd love to go into the details of this. Please do read through it again by yourself. But we just don't have time to go into all the details of it. Uh, but let's look at verse 13, though, because this is my favorite, the ostrich. I love this bit. Um, Job, right, let's think about the ostrich. It's got wings, but it can't fly. Verse 13, the wings of the ostrich flap joyfully, though they cannot compare with the wings and feathers of the stork. Uh, not only can she not fly, but when she lays her eggs, she leaves her eggs on the ground. It's not like other birds who can't fly and would leave them up in a nest. She leaves them on the ground where any animal can just walk by and trample all over them. What's God saying? He's saying, in other words, an ostrich is stupid. And the reason that she is stupid is because, verse 17, God made her stupid. God did not endow her with wisdom or give her a share of good sense. And yet, somehow, she survives. And not only that, when she runs, she can run at such a speed that she laughs at the horse and rider. See, everything, even the stupidity of certain animals, falls under God's sovereign care. It shouldn't survive, but it does. He goes on to speak about the great power of the war horse and the wisdom of the hawk and the eagle, how, how God's made these animals that can fly. And the point is that everything in creation is governed by a mighty, wise and powerful God. There's just loads of stuff out there that just screams of the wisdom of a creator. Like, you know, how a bee flies. We've got loads of them in our back garden at the moment. If you see a bee, apparently a bee shouldn't fly. And people are trying to work out how it works because it's just this big fat body of fur with these tiny little wings. It shouldn't and yet somehow it does. Or jellyfish, apparently NASA scientists are are studying jellyfish to help understand the effects of weightlessness in space and how they move. In other words, we we live in a wonderful world filled with, and, and it is a world that is filled with brokenness and hurt. And we'll think more about that next week about how, how all the, the brokenness fits into God's great redemptive plan for the universe. 
But all of it is governed by his wisdom. And so this is the point. Chapter 40, verse 1. The Lord said to Job, Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer. In other words, Job, who do you think you are? And who do you think that you're accusing? Now, is is this harsh and unsympathetic? Do you know what God is saying here to the man who has lost his children? I did not make a mistake in allowing that to happen. My counsel is perfect. Now that is so hard for us to get our head around because we don't see how that could possibly be good. I guess we we never will in this life. It's so hard, but it's so essential. And God is not unsympathetic to pain when he reminds us of that. I mean, just think of Jesus. I mean, Jesus is the perfect revelation of God, right? Jesus weeps over the sin of Jerusalem. Jesus weeps and and is filled with anger and rage at the death of his friends. He is not unsympathetic to suffering. But he still gets us to see that we are limited and that God is limitless. And so it's the two points of wisdom from this speech, the two take-home points. And and I hope you've felt it, even if we've just dipped our toe into this. The first point is that God's speech helps us to see ourselves as small. The answer to every question that God poses to Job is, I can't, I can't. It's a reminder of how limited we are, how small, how finite, how frail. And yet when we suffer, we cannot help but think that that we know best, that that God is cruel and absent. We can't do that. We can't think that. We can't try and base truth of our, our limited understanding. You know, if you had to get brain surgery for a serious illness, you, you wouldn't go up to the brain surgeon and say, no way are you cutting my skull open. That's going to hurt. You wouldn't lecture him on how he should do it because he knows better than you, even if you can't understand it. And the second point of wisdom in this is to get us to see that God is big. The answer from Job is I can't. But the answer from God is, I can and I do and I will. This is a reminder of how great, majestic, powerful and wise the creator of this world is. This speech helps us take our eyes off ourselves and look at his greatness. And there has to be, with God, if we're treating God as God, there has to be a sense of mystery and awe. There's stuff that we can know that he has revealed to us, but there's stuff that we don't know. A sense of awe and a sense of reverence. I remember an author called David Wells saying that one of the big problems in the church today is that God rests too lightly on it. If God rests too lightly on your life, you will not be able to deal with suffering. See him in his glory. It's what we hold on to. 
and we submit it all into his hands and we are in such a better position than Job because because we've seen Jesus. We've seen how he was crucified, how he was punished for our sinful pride so that we could be certain that we will be with him for all eternity forgiven. So just think on the cross as we close in this speech. Think about it, the greatest act of suffering and evil in the whole history of the world was used by God in his wisdom to bring about the greatest act of salvation. The cross shows us pain bringing eternal joy, evil being used for ultimate good, light overcoming the darkness. Would we ever have thought of that? And yet, that's how God rescued us. And so the promise for all who are in Jesus is that all that we experience now in our pain will be used for glory in eternity. The wounds of God are the wounds of a surgeon, not a killer. God is God. God is good. What do we do with this speech? We repent, we bow, and we worship. Let's pray. Father, we... Uh, just dip our toes into a tiny bit of the greatness of who you are that we see in this speech. And we just ask simply that you would show us your greatness. Teach us, Father. We do not want to speak words without knowledge, so help us to speak of what we do not, of what we do know. We know that you are God. We know that you are good. We know that you are great. We know that you have rescued us from sin. We know that you will use every form of suffering in our life for an ultimate good. We know that because you have told us. And yet we do not know how that all works out. Please teach us to humbly submit to your sovereign rule especially when the times of darkness and trial come upon us. Help us to know that God is God and God is good. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Well, we're going to um, uh, finish by singing two more songs. Uh, We're going to sing together uh, How Great Thou Art and then uh, the other one after it, I can't remember. Um, but it will be great regardless of what it is. So let's sing these two songs.